0: One of the things that we talk about at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, is coming out of this world. We read uh, earlier during the night to be observed, um, Exodus 12, verse 41, and it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Of Egypt. This morning we read uh, in chapter 13 and verse 3 And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. So the Israelites came out of Egypt with a high hand, with great celebration, on a high note from a land that had meant so much hardship and bondage to them. And, of course, the lesson is that we must come out of Egypt as well. But, you know, when we read the rest of the story for the Israelites, they never really came out of Egypt, did they? Or rather, they did come out of Egypt, but Egypt never came out of them. The mindset, the idolatry, the paganism, So much so that years, generations, centuries later, the Apostle John said that the city of Jerusalem spiritually was called Egypt. Spiritually was called Egypt. That's interesting. They never really left Egypt. They just took it with them. So one of the things that we think about during these days is making sure that we are Letting Egypt go in our lives to be totally cleaned out of our hearts. But there's something else, I think, in this scripture in Revelation that John said that I'd like to key off of today and start as the starting point. Let's turn over there to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7. It's speaking of the two witnesses, of course. And he says in verse 7, "...when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, will overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified." Jerusalem was not only called Egypt centuries after they came out of Egypt, supposedly. By the time that the Apostle John wrote, he said Jerusalem was also called Sodom. Sodom. Why would it be called Sodom? Not only had ancient Judah absorbed the attributes of Egypt, but she had also absorbed the attributes of another city, spiritually, and that was Sodom. So brethren, as we observe this last day of Unleavened Bread, I have a question for you to ask yourself. Not just, am I coming out of Egypt, but am I coming out of Sodom? Are you coming out of Sodom? And you might think, hold on a second, what do you mean, coming out of Sodom? I don't have that problem, you know? I might have other sins, but I don't have that problem. The question is, was homosexuality the only sin of Sodom? Was Sodom destroyed only for perversion? You know, when we really look at it, when we're really honest, modern Israel today, that's us, looks a whole lot like ancient Sodom. So as we're coming out of Egypt, so to speak, are we also coming out of Sodom? If you want a title for today, my title is Coming Out of Sodom. What was Sodom really like? Let's get a little background. We're first introduced to the city of Sodom over in Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, when there was an altercation between Abraham and and Lot... And their herdsmen, Genesis chapter 13, in verse 1, Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, to the south. And Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. In verse 3, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord, Lot also, who went with Abram, and had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, the Canaanites and the Parasites then dwelt in the land. Apparently, the, the strife was between Abram and, and Lot as well, perhaps, the conflict. It's not really hard to imagine. Sometimes, you know, even in a family, sometimes there can be a misunderstanding, especially as they were growing, and they kind of were stepping on each other's toes, so a, a conflict grew. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between me and you, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brethren, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, I will take the left. So Abram was showing a a certain mindset already of being a peacemaker, even though he was the elder, even though he could have told Lot perhaps, you know, you need to go there. And get out of here, you know. Um, he didn't. He didn't say that. He said, "You choose where you want to go, and I'll let you. I'll let you uh, take the best if that's what you want." So Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. As you go towards Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east and they separated from each other. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. And pitched his tent even far. As far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against The Lord. Not a good decision. Sodom Sodom was not a good place to live. Lot was actually making the choice to become more entangled in the world. We understand that. A lot of lessons in that for us. But, brethren, we live in Sodom. We live in modern Sodom. And Christ said, as we heard this morning, he, He wouldn't take us out of the world but he wants to get the world out of us. Brethren, spiritually, which way are we leaning? It says that Lot leaned his tent towards Sodom. That was the direction he was facing. Which way are we leaning our tent? These last seven days have been instructing us to get our orientation away from Sodom. Sodom. But you know, there's another interesting thing here that we may gloss over normally, and that is what did Sodom look like? I think normally we we probably think of Sodom as kind of a creepy place, you know, where people are kind of lurking behind uh, every corner and really creepy alleys where you don't want to go down that alley. That's not what it said. It said it was beautiful. Like the Garden of the Lord. What's your mental picture of the Garden of Eden? Okay, put that in your mind. Put the, have, you, have you got that mental picture now? Are you imagining the Garden of Eden? At least the way we all picture it somehow, right? Okay? So the caption is the Garden of Eden. And you're picturing the mental picture of the leaves and the trees and the, the forests and the streams and the lakes and the ponds. Okay, now change the caption. Take that off and put Sodom. But leave the trees and the ponds and the grass and the beautiful landscape. That's apparently what Sodom looked like. Sodom the beautiful. We could, we could change our song a little bit. To sing Sodom the beautiful. We don't normally think about it that way, but that's what the Bible says. It was a beautiful place. Why wouldn't Lot want to go there? A land flowing with milk and honey. In that sense. Brethren, we live in America the beautiful. Incredible vistas. We heard about that this morning. As you're traveling, really in any direction. As you travel across this great country and you see the incredible physical blessings that God has given us, the the stunning coastlands, the incredible mountains out west, the never-ending natural beauty on a scale that is just far beyond anything we could imagine. And then you go to Alaska, and there's even more. We have such an incredibly beautiful country. that's the facade isn't it what's really inside rot corruption filth putrefication cancer it's falling apart from the inside right the beauty is only the facade As we consider this, we need to make sure that we see Sodom Sodom clearly because, brethren, we are living in it today. As we read the story, we won't read all of the accounts here, but one of the things that we find out was that Sodom came under attack by some of the kings of the east. They made war on Sodom. And it says in Genesis 14, verse 4, that 12 years they served Chedar Lomar... Uh, for 12 years, so think about it. Lot was living in this city, this city-state, and they came under captivity for 12 years. Well, then the, the king of Sodom rebelled, and we know the war that went on, and Lot and many of the inhabitants were taken captive. They were removed, and Abram went after them. He took all his armed servants in his household, What, 300 plus or so? And he rescued Lot. You think about it. Was that a little bit of a foreshadowing? Should that have told Lot a little bit about what was going to happen in the future? That where he was living was not a good place to live. He was being taken captive. And Abram actually rescued him from it. But he didn't really get the long-term point. So he was delivered by Abraham. He interceded for him. And uh, just like he interceded later on, remember when God appeared to Abraham in the heat of the day and he offered and gave him food and they talked and he explained that I'm going down to Sodom. I'm going to see what it's really like because the reports I've gotten are not good. And Abraham interceded for him, for Sodom. And finally he negotiated for God to, if as long as there are ten righteous people in the city, that he wouldn't destroy it. You know, the fact that he destroyed it, what does that say about Sodom? There were not even ten. He destroyed the city. A society absolutely given over to evil and wickedness. Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter twenty-three, because years later, Judah was compared to Sodom. Notice how he described them. Jeremiah chapter twenty-three. Jeremiah chapter twenty-three and verse, verse nine. He says, my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome. Because of the Lord, because of his holy words, for the land is full of adulterers. For because of the curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil and their might is not right. Their whole lifestyle is off track, he said. Everything's wrong. Verse 11 for both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Therefore their ways shall be to them like slippery ways. In a the darkness they shall be driven on and fall in them. And I will bring disaster on them, the year of their punishment, says the Lord. Verse 14, also I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me, and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Judah was like Sodom. The prophet said, Why? In what way? Well, we just read it. A number of things are listed. But one of those things in Sodom that was wrong was not just those who were sinning, but those who were approving of the sin. They strengthen the hands of the evildoers. Does that sound anything like our country today? Not every last person, for example, is a homosexual. But even the conservatives in government don't speak out and say it's wrong. They're just debating whether it should be called marriage or civil union. Isn't that right? The debate about whether homosexuality is wrong or not doesn't take place in government anymore. It's just, they're just quibbling over definitions. Well, that was Sodom, what was Sodom was like. It wasn't that every last person was a homosexual. It was that they approved of it or said, you know, you do your thing. As long as you don't bother me, as long as you don't hurt anybody, that's cool. Does that sound familiar? Is that what we say today? You live your life, I live mine, I'm not going to judge you. That's exactly what we do today in our culture, in in Sodom in 2011. Also called the United States of America. Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse, verse 46. Ezekiel adds another element in speaking to Judah. Ezekiel 16 and verse 46, he says... Verse 46, your elder sister is Samaria who dwells with her daughters to the north of you. Again, he's talking to Judah, to Jerusalem. And your younger sister who dwells to the south of you is Sodom and her daughters. You did not walk in their ways nor act according to their abominations. It almost looks like at first he's saying to Jerusalem, well done, you didn't follow in the example of Sodom. But look at the next phrase he said, But, as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. You know, that's pretty bad when God says, you were worse than Sodom. You were worse than Sodom. And yet that was ancient Judah. That was part of the nation of Israel. Only by God's mercy and and for the sake of His plan were they not destroyed, just like Sodom was. Later in history, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 20. Hundreds of years later, some of the Jews... We're still coming up short when compared with, of all places, Sodom. Matthew chapter 11, and verse 20. He says in verse 20, Jesus Christ speaking, "...then He began to rebuke the cities in which most of His mighty works had been done, because they did not repent." Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And to you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom. It would have remained until this day. Deuteronomy 31 and verse uh, verse 27. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today while I am with you alive, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? He perceived pretty clearly what would happen. Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and and call heaven and earth to witness against them for I know after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands and Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended what did the song say what was Israel to think about in the latter days what was the message to be for end-time Israel? Well, what is the message that we are passing on in our work? What's the message for modern Israel today? Read on to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 1. "Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Verse 4, He is the rock, His work is perfect For all of His ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. But they have corrupted themselves. They are not His children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation. God's children, Israel, were prophesied in the end time to not even know who they were anymore. To be perverse and and crooked. Verse 6, do you... Uh, "...thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people. Is He not your Father who brought you? Has He not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your Father. He will show you your elders, and they will tell you when the Most High divided their their inheritance to the nations when He separated the sons of Abraham." Think about the old days. Think about what happened. Think about why you are where you are today. Isn't that the message we have to the world? Primarily to Jacob? Verse 13 He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock. With fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats and the choicest wheat, and you drank wine, the the blood of the grapes. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. He made Israel to be a superpower, to ride on the heights of the earth. To be the breadbasket of the world, the finest of wheat. But with our, all of our blessings, we have forsaken God as a nation. Verse 28, For they are a nation void of counsel. There is no, no understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not our rock, not like our rock, even our enemies. Not understanding where their blessings come from, not understanding where the victories in battle came from. Verse 32. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall and their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. For all those blessings, for all the shine and the brilliance of modern Israel, which we are a part of today, it's all facade. The inside is bitter and sour. Just doesn't taste right. Are we coming out of Sodom? Leviticus chapter 23. Let's turn over there. Leviticus chapter 23. And verse 1. We read this on the holy days. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, say to them the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. They are not the Jews. They're not of any certain nation. They're not of any certain race. They were meant for man. And one day they will be kept by all mankind. Verse four, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations that you shall proclaim At their appointed times, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover, which we kept. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it as well. So that's what we've been doing. And, of course, this is the seventh day. Let's turn over now to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 and verse verse 15. We've been eating unleavened bread for seven days after getting all the leavening out of our homes. Before that, in preparation. Verse 15, Exodus 12. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. As we heard this morning, these days symbolize leaving God's people, leaving the bondage and captivity of their past, of Egypt, physically, but also Egypt spiritually. The question for us today, brethren, yes, are we coming out of Egypt, but also are we coming out of Sodom? Because that's exactly what our society is like today. Our generation was prophesied to be. Let's break this down. Let's make it a little more practical, hopefully. Just what were the sins of Sodom so that we can come out of them? As we are physically leavened and as we are striving and thinking about overcoming spiritual leaven. What were the sins of Sodom? In the remaining time, let's talk about that. The first was sexual immorality sexual immorality it's no surprise that sodom was was full of homosexuals uh, we know that from the story of lot but maybe that was only part of the story notice jude chapter 1 and verse verse 7 actually there's only one chapter so you can call it jude chapter 2 verse 7 if you want but or 3 verse 7 Key is go to verse seven. We're gonna we're breaking into the thought here, but it says, "He says in uh, Jude verse seven, as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire." There are two statements here. The men of Sodom went after strange flesh. Unnatural use of sex, of course. Homosexuality. But notice carefully the other is the normal sexual immorality, right? That's what it says. Sexual immorality and going after strange flesh. So the normal people were behaving badly too in Sodom. Those who weren't homosexuals. Now think about it. Is sexual immorality a problem in our country today? Well, that's a given. You know, I I mean, it's so commonplace. According to some estimates, a third of teens in this country admit they are sexually active. Many singles today in our country, in our society, jump into and out of sexual relationships without batting an eye. I mean, it's, it's no longer considered a stigma. From 1970 to 1994, the number of unmarried couples living together in the U.S. increased nearly 550% in 24 years. You think about it. Talk about a watershed change in the culture. 24 years. By 2007, that's already four years ago, 40% of births happened outside of marriage. That's a historical precedent never before occurred in our country. 40% of all births. That was already four years ago. It's not the United States alone. A Washington Post article several years said this. Marriage is in decline across much of northern Europe, from Scandinavia to France. In 2005, 59% of all firstborn French children were born to unwed parents. Most by choice, not chance. Most by choice, not Chance In England, France, the United States, cohabitation precedes marriage in roughly half or more of all cases. In Sweden, cohabitation is on its way to becoming the norm. Roughly one-third of all couples cohabit instead of marry. Now, isn't that a nice term, cohabit? It sounds like something you see on, you know, uh, Wild Kingdom or something. (laughs) Habitat cohabit, living together, um, you know, it's sexual immorality. And it's what brought Sodom down. Isn't it also interesting that these insane rates of fornication instead of marriage are taking place in the modern Israelite countries? America, the British Commonwealth, Northwest Europe. All people who should know better who have the scriptures, who were ancient Israelites. The point is, it's not just homosexuality. It's adultery and fornication that brought down Sodom. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 19 and verse 4. Here's the problem. We live in Sodom, and so we've got to resist it. We've got to come out of it in all its forms. Because one of the problems with living in Sodom is that we are affected just by being in it. Isn't that right? Living in Sodom affects our attitude, our mindset to one degree or another, whether we admit it or not. Genesis chapter 19 and verse 4. Let's break into the story here of Lot in a situation he found himself in. Remember when the angels went down to to Sodom? And it says, chapter 19 and verse 4, Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Wasn't that generous of Lot? You know, I mean, he was a true man. He was not going to allow these visitors to be hurt. Wasn't that generous of him? Brethren did living in Sodom affect lot. Now we can debate whether or not he really meant to do this, you know, whether he was bluffing, uh, maybe he knew the men would not accept. Maybe it was an idle statement, but even to make that statement, can you imagine? Had Lot's attitude towards sex become compromised? Ask yourself that question. You know, he was called a righteous man in the New Testament. It says his righteous soul was vexed day by day living in this evil city. Day by day. The point was, just being around it, he was affected by it, maybe not even realizing it. God may see us as righteous. Our soul may be vexed by it day by day. And yet we may still have blind spots like Lot did. The sin of Sodom wasn't just homosexuality. It was a whole casual attitude towards sex and immorality. And as we are asking God to clean us up and, and become unleavened and, and examining ourselves ourselves, Are we asking him to scrub up and scrub out any parts of our mind and life where we have some degree of being guilty of this? We find another example a little later on. Were were, uh, were Lot's children affected by living in Sodom? Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. Genesis 19 and verse 30. Verse 30, after they escaped Sodom, remember the story, they went up to Zoar and dwelt in the mountains and his two daughters were with him for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know where when she lay down or when she arose. And it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us also make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, and that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Were the children affected? Did they adopt a casual attitude toward sex by living in Sodom? You know, this narrative just states it very matter-of-factly. But what could have made these girls think that way other than being surrounded by it? The point is, we are surrounded by Sodom. What are we doing about it? Are we allowing it to make us callous towards something that God made to be a wonderful unifying thing in in marriage. How casual is the attitude towards sex in our country today? Well, in our culture, many teenage girls believe it's a status symbol to be pregnant today as a teenager and not married. In our country today, we have teens who, who have FWBs. You know what an FWB is? Friends with benefits. The benefit you can... Fill in the blank. Use your imagination. It's, it's sex. Friendship, you know, casual sex just part of friendship. In our country today, we have teens who are sexting. According to a poll some time ago, 20% of teens said they had sent nude or semi-nude pictures of themselves through cell phones, email, or Internet postings. said they had sent sexually suggestive text messages, instant messages or emails. We have teens for whom going to the prom means losing their virginity. That's just what going to the prom means. Or freak dancing. If you don't know what that means, look it up on the Internet. It's vulgar and disgusting, but this is what... Many of our young people today are used to in our culture. Brethren, it's a different world than when most of us grew up 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. We are Sodom. We are Sodom. And if we blind our eyes to it, we do it to our own peril. Our children are bombarded by this message that sex is available and cheap. Mr. Phil Senna wrote an article in Tomorrow's World several years ago, Why Looking Hot Is Not, about the sexualization of little girls. It's appalling. But brethren, here's the point. It's not just other people. It's not just out there. The problem is it affects our attitudes too. Let's not just think that it's the society and we're somehow insulated We need to look at the dark corners of our mind and our attitudes and our perspectives. How casual are we when it comes to immorality? Are we walking too close to the line? Are we allowing our mind to entertain impure thoughts? What do we watch on TV? Maybe we're getting so used to seeing people hop in and out of bed on TV, we don't even notice. It becomes normal. Ladies are the fashions we're drawn to, the oversexualized looks that we see in society around us. Do we have to go along with those, those fashions, even if they are pushing the line of modesty? <clears throat> Our ladies can dress with beauty and taste without pushing those boundaries. You know, we've also taught certain guidelines at camp and at the feast about modest swimwear. The point is, we, we need to acknowledge we don't want to just go along with the world, especially when the world we're living in is Sodom. Don't you think? We can set a better example of that. Gentlemen, if we want our ladies to dress modestly, how do we view ladies' fashions? Do we make reference to scantily clad women as being hot or babes? Isn't that kind of counterproductive if we want them to dress modestly? What does that signal to our wives, our sisters, our our brothers if we make comments like that? What does that signal to our daughters about what they have to do to get our approval? To look hot? Men, we have our part to play. To not put things in front of our eyes that would offend. To be careful and vigilant about keeping up the hedges about us. To not skirt along the edge of trouble. If you believe the media and the movies and the TV shows and the way Hollywood portrays it, strip clubs and pornography is absolutely normal today and totally mainstream. And so pervasive that it's, it's no big deal. It's woven into society. It is pervasive because we're living in Sodom. But it also is a big deal to God that we don't get so caught up into it. And if we are in it, that we get out. Some of you may have seen the movie Fireproof that came out a few years ago, a movie about a married man and how he saved his marriage, which included getting rid of pornography. The man was played by Kirk Cameron. His wife in the movie was played by an actor. But in the final scene, he kisses his wife in in the movie, but he insisted the shot be done with his real wife. And that caused, you know, quite a little uproar among the Hollywoods. Like, ha, 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 what a big, it's just make-believe. But you know what? It wasn't make-believe to him. Just kissing another actor, he didn't want to do it. He said, I want it to be my wife. There are some, even out there, who recognize this is Sodom, and they don't want to go that way. Brethren, what about us? We are living in a society that's become calloused towards sex, but not everybody is going along with it. And God has called us to be among those who swim against the stream who know a better way. First Corinthians chapter six and verse verse nine. We are living in it. But we have to come out of it. First Corinthians chapter six and verse verse nine. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, we, we just normally think of homosexual sins being associated with Sodom. That's not true. It was just a generally loose lifestyle. That's the point which is what we have today. Verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price." Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And thank God that we were bought at a price. We observed that at the Passover, didn't we? Thank God. Let's ask God. Let's use His Spirit to help us to show us ourselves, to clean up anything that doesn't measure up to what Mr. Amen was talking about the other day. You know, the template... Of Jesus Christ. Anything that doesn't measure up. That was one of the sins of Sodom. What was another one? Well, let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. Another sin of Sodom was their complacency. Yes, there there was more than just the sexual immorality. They were also complacent. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse, verse 49, we find that described here. As we think about who we are, where we live in our society today, we are coming out of it, but that is our, what our surrounding is. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse, verse 49. He says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw fit. That's interesting. God said He took them away. Why? Not just their sexual sins. He didn't even really mention it here. He took them away because how they handled success. How they handled material blessings. Now what's wrong with a little complacency, right? You know, <laughs> What's wrong with being a little laid back? Not too excitable. Is it really a big deal? Well, we read before about how beautiful and green and prosperous the area of Sodom was. Apparently, it was quite prosperous, and that was part of the problem. Remember Lot's wife. What happened to Lot's wife? Mrs. Lot, right? Mrs. Lot. Poor lady, she doesn't even have a name. She's just Lot's wife. Was she attracted by the the homosexual lifestyle? What, What was it that turned her back? You know, there's no indication that she was attracted by that more than likely she was lured by the fact that she had left nice things there. Her family was there too. It had been a blessed city it was a comfortable lifestyle for her and maybe it lulled her to sleep became complacent. put yourself in her shoes you know how would it feel to to be fleeing with nothing? except what you're, you have on after living in a, in a comfortable surrounding. Uh, lot was a leader in the city, apparently an elder in Sodom, because he sat at the gate where the city leaders officiated. So she might have been quite comfortable, and she was leaving all that behind. Maybe with no material things, fleeing to the wilderness. She Maybe she didn't do a lot of camping, okay, you know. Maybe this was the first time she had really had to go live in a cave, and that didn't sound real good. For whatever reason, she looked back and became disqualified. Luke chapter 17 and verse 26. Jesus Christ warned our generation to not get so wrapped up in the cares of the world that we get complacent and sloppy and lazy and start to drift spiritually. And who does he use as an example? Luke 17 and verse... 26. Luke 17 and verse... Verse 26, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it also was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed? It doesn't say a thing about homosexuality. It doesn't even say anything about sexual immorality. It talks about their being prosperous. That was one of the traps of Sodom. Maybe that's one of the big dangers for us too because we live in a Culture of materialism and comfort, and we can be lulled to sleep spiritually. I admit it; I am part of the TV generation. I'm I'm going to confess now. Okay, I'm, that feels better. Um, <laughs> I think we have a built-in a little, a bit of complacency. My generation, because we 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 had TV, we watched TV. And um, the passi- passivity, if that's a word, of of of, wa- of learning, of watching TV and movies and those type, sorts of things, becomes ingrained. And I think our lifestyle has has taught us, has trained us, all too often to be more passive than previous generations. I'll give you an example. I was a college student attending uh, Ambassador College, and uh, one time we were at Sabbath services is the Day of Atonement. And I was sitting with some of my friends uh, for services, and we were just about to begin services, and uh, one of the uh, widows, elderly widows in the congregation, was sitting on one side of me. And we were all fasting. She was fasting, as we all were. uh, But her blood sugar seemed to go low, and um, we sang the, the songs, and then the opening prayer began... And I remember looking down, and I didn't have my eyes totally closed, and in my peripheral vision, I began to see her falling, her her knees just buckling. And I I, I couldn't do a thing. I saw it happening, but by the time I I could react to do anything, she was already on the floor. And one of the deacons on the other side of the aisle ran over and kind of picked her up and, are you okay? And she was fine. She had just kind of fainted a little bit. But the thought went through my head. It was like a movie. It was like I was watching something happen and it wasn't real to me. I was totally passive. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's what's wrong with TV and movies and having a lot of entertainment where we become passive. I said, you know, it's, it's happened to me. I didn't react. It seemed to be happening in slow motion, and yet I was frozen. Brethren, think about it. With all the time of TV and movie and videos in our generations, I think it's had an impact on our, our normal reactions to normal life. <clears throat> you know, that's another reason. That we need to turn the TV off and go do stuff, right? (laughs) Go do real stuff. Not just because there's a lot of filth on TV and movies, but because it makes us passive. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. This society has had an impact An effect on us, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, even in just becoming sort of passive, because everything is thrown at us as spectators. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, but Paul said we cannot afford to be passive. He said, doing this, knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. In other words, to fulfill our calling as Christians, we need to be awake and alert and ready to act and react. We need to be in fighting form. We need to be in training and, and not allow ourselves to become complacent. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, which in fact we find is one of the chief attributes of our time, being complacent. Revelation chapter 3 and verse Verse 14, he says to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would wish you were cold or hot. You're not rebellious. That's good. But you know, you're not really fully engaged either. You're lethargic. That's what God is telling the era of the Laodiceans. That's a warning for us. When our son was in soccer uh, and we were at one of his practices, I remember the coach was getting on some of the boys for being lethargic. And he told one of the boys, Get your hands out of your pockets. You can't play soccer with your hands in your pockets. (laughs) He was getting so frustrated. Get your hands out of your pockets. Hustle, hustle, hustle. And it made me think of some of the things that, that I had heard as a kid growing up isn't that kind of what God is telling us? Even if we're playing right field, you know, and you never get fly balls to right field, right? Even if we're playing right field, God doesn't want to have our hands in our pockets. Because He says, you've got to be ready. At any time. You may have a, a play. Your minds can't be wandering, you know, following the butterflies and... Looking at the daisies and picking flowers. No, we got to be ready. Even if we're way out in right field. Verse 16, he says, So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The problem is you can't see yourself. And brethren, that's exactly the point. Sometimes we can't see the blind spots because it's so normal around us and because we are living in Sodom. And that's why we need the power of God, as we heard already. We can't deliver ourselves from Egypt or Sodom. It has to be the power of God to see ourselves. I counsel you, he says, to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous and repent. God willing, we don't have to go to the extremes to become zealous. God willing, we can become zealous now. We don't have to wait until the tribulation, to get on fire. We can do it now. On this last day of unleavened bread, after seven days of feeding on physical unleavened bread, but thinking about as we are feeding on Christ, let's, let's not stop now. Let's continue to feed on Him. Let's ask Him to fill us with His mindset. So our focus is not just on our comforts and our needs. Because that was a trap of Sodom. And it can be a trap for us. There's one more aspect of Sodom and the sins of Sodom. was That was their reputation. They had a reputation for being unfriendly and unkind. Sodom had a reputation for being unfriendly and unkind. Let's turn to uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. This may not seem like a big issue at first. Uh, compared to the others we talked about, but it seems like the Sodomites took this to an extreme. Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16 and verse 49. He said, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. They didn't strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Josephus says this about the men of Sodom. He said, The Sodomites, overwhelmingly proud of their numbers and the extent of their wealth, showed themselves insolent to men and impious to the divinity, insomuch that they no more remembered the benefits that they had received from him, hated foreigners... "...and declined all intercourse with others. Indignant at this conduct, God accordingly resolved to chastise them for their arrogance." They weren't friendly. They were downright mean. The Babylonian Talmud comments about the Sodomites saying this, "...the men of Sodom waxed haughty only on account of the good which the Holy One, blessed be He, had lavished upon them. They said, since there cometh forth bread out of our earth..." and it has the dust of gold, why should we suffer wayfarers who come to us only to deplete our wealth? Come, let us abolish the practice of traveling in our land. According to the Babylonian Talmud, that's the way the Sodomites were. If a poor man happened to come there, every resident gave him a dinar, a coin, upon which he wrote his name, but no bread was given. The store owners recognized such coins and refused to accept them. When the person died, each came back and took back his dinar. He got his coin back. According to one rabbi, they even fenced in all their fruit trees, even at the top, so that no wear-faring stranger could even pick them. Interesting. So, according to Jewish tradition, they were not just sexually immoral. They were not just complacent, but a very selfish and cruel and unkind people. It's interesting when we read the story of Lot from this perspective. Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19 again. In verse 1. Remember, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Apparently, Lot was a magistrate or an elder uh, sitting at the gate. And, you know, perhaps he was even there to protect strangers. Who knows? You know, just speculating. Knowing the cruelty of the people of, of his own city. In this way, Lot seemed to have remarkable character. And he even invited them in, uh, even knowing what might happen to him. Genesis chapter 19 and verse, verse, uh, verse 2. And he said, Here now, my servants, my, uh, my lords, please turn in to your servants' house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. He may have known it was dangerous for them. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. You know, there's no indication that he knew that these were angels. This may have been his habit. This may have been what he did with any strangers who came in. His custom. Interestingly as well, it may have occurred during the days of unleavened bread. One source says that Sodom was destroyed on the 16th of Nisan. And it appears that he was making unleavened bread during these days. <clears throat> Verse 9. Of course, the, uh, the man came and attacked the house. And um, then the men said to Lot, they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here. And he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with him and shut the door. When Lot stood up against these men, they chided him. And they called him a stranger, uh, deserving of the same treatment as the visitor's. Another author makes this interesting comment about Sodom. He says, Fundamentalists who like to see issues in black and white terms generally like to see Sodom's destruction as a judgment on homosexuality. I believe, this writer says, that this does not accord with the Bible record. Gay theologians, on the other hand, sorry, that, that's an oxymoron. Gay theolo- We'll just go right over that. Uh, commit the same error of oversimplification by seeing Sodom's destruction as a judgment on inhospitality. And the Bible record does not support that conclusion either. Real life is usually more complex, and the great judge of all the earth sees all there is to our lives. I believe that if we examine the Bible record with an open mind, we are forced to conclude that Sodom was destroyed for sins that are not uncommon in today's affluent society. Sins that are rooted in self-sufficiency and flaunted in rebellion. I wonder if there's some truth to what he's saying. Not downplaying the homosexuality, but there seemed to be a bigger picture. A whole lifestyle that was in direct conflict and antagonism against God's law in general. Sexual immorality, pride, vanity, and complacency, selfishness, and cruelty to others. Brethren, the question for us is, how do we treat our fellow man? Do we love? Do we forgive? Are we kind? Are we easily entreated? All these things we talk about during these days, leading up to Passover... The reason we need to ask ourselves, because our society, you know this, is becoming increasingly harsh and cruel and cold. Remember the uh, accident that happened in Hartford, Connecticut several years ago, June 6, 2008? An elderly man was, was trying to cross the street. He was hit by a car. Not only did the driver drive away, but nine cars passed him without stopping. It took a full 40 seconds before anyone stepped off the sidewalk to get a closer look at him. But no one went to help him or to even divert traffic. He was lying on the ground. A minute and a half minutes later, a police car happened to come by and saw him and stopped. Chief Daryl Roberts expressed outrage in a news conference, according to this article, saying, We no longer have a moral compass. It's a clear indication of what we have become when you see a man laying in the street, hit by a car, and just drive around him. Now, in defense of some, I think they had called 911, and so 911 came. But still, the man was lying in the street. Have we become a cold society? On April 8, 2009, a lady was raped by a man on a subway late at night. But not before two separate transit employees saw her and the assailant. They pushed the emergency button, but they did nothing more than that. In an interview, the woman said, the, 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 the woman said she has forgiven her attacker but not forgiven the mass transit authority. She said, Unfortunately, the man who assaulted me was obviously mentally ill and psychotic. He probably had no basis of reality. He didn't have a conscience. But the transit worker did. He was a human being capable of feeling emotions as I was. I just felt that it was so cold-hearted and just completely abominable to basically look the other way. other acts of cruelty and, and butchery that we hear so many times, it becomes commonplace. Brethren, are we living in modern Sodom or not? Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. The kind of heartless and even violent cruelty that Sodom was apparently known for, it happens all the time in America the Beautiful, right? It happens all the time. And that's where we come from. Have we gotten callous to feeling the needs of others? Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Boy, does that describe our country today. Supposedly a Christian country. Supposedly, what's the percentage? Ninety percent of people say they pray. Pray. a form of godliness, but denied its power. It's describing Sodom. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. He's giving counsel to Timothy. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse. And worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus Christ foretold that at the time of the end, the love of many would wax cold. Brethren, what about us? As we observe and as we finish these feast days of unleavened bread, are we growing cold towards one another or towards our neighbors, towards fellow human beings? Is it getting easier for us to forgive or harder? Are we getting more merciful or less merciful? Isaiah chapter 1. As we begin to wrap up here. Isaiah chapter 1. Are we becoming more like Jesus Christ? That's the challenge, isn't it? And that's the goal. And that's the power that God gives to us. But we must acknowledge where we're coming from in order to be able to fight against it. And we are coming out of Sodom. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse verse 9. He's talking to Jerusalem in particular, but but Israel in, in general. Notice what... He says in verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. How did God view ancient Israel at that time? As rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of ram and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Brethren, think about this. He's saying that we could be keeping the feasts. We could be keeping the Sabbath. We could be coming to church. We could be warming a seat. And yet still be no better in his mind than Sodom. Because they were keeping the feasts the days that we're keeping today. If we are cruel and unforgiving and unloving. Verse 15, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Jesus Christ forgave us. We kept the Passover to commemorate that. Now it's our turn to forgive others. Going forward. It's our turn to let Christ live His life in us, to be patient and kind and and gentle. Not to compromise or condone sin, but to honor and respect one another. To be begotten sons of God made in His image. Verse 16, "'Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good.'" Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Brethren, we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? As we ponder the meaning of these days of unleavened bread... And all the things that we've learned and all the things we've talked about and all the things that we've studied and God has opened our minds to, even in the last seven days, our calling, our baptism, our sins forgiven and the wonderful blessing of receiving the Holy Spirit. Let's make sure that these feast days that we have just concluded help us to go forward with Christ living in us and grow and develop and become more like Him than ever. We've looked at a few ways that Sodom was in rebellion against God. We are coming out of the world, out of Egypt, out of Sodom. Let's take these lessons and let's apply them. Let's be clean and remain clean morally. That's what God is calling us to. Let's be alert and alive to do His will and to serve Him more than ever. And let's be attentive to the needs of our fellow man and and serve one another with love and kindness. We have a tremendous destiny. And these days teach us that we are preparing to live and rule and teach in God's coming kingdom. May that day come soon. Brethren, let's make sure we come out of Sodom.